Well, hey, everyone. My name is Jacob Hunter. And back on June 11th, I had the opportunity to teach in the Family Life Sunday School class at Timberlake Baptist Church. And unfortunately, from what I understand, the recorder did not function as it was supposed to. And so Nathan Weidman asked me to make another recording, at least covering some of the main things that I talked about in class that week, uh, just so that there wouldn't be any gaps in the series that we're doing for the summer. Um, And our series is based actually on Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, which is a biblical guide to resolving personal conflict. And it's it's a wonderful book. I really... uh, really benefited from the study uh, for this lesson. And we talked about really the first chapter of the book, which is entitled Conflict Provides Opportunities. We started class that day by bringing up a few scenarios um, to talk about the way that we respond to various conflicts in our lives. And uh, actually, just to note before I continue, there will be online or at least somewhere, I know Nathan was saying, access to the PowerPoint I used in class. And I mentioned that Because as we talked about how we respond to conflict, I put up this graphic from Ken Sandy um, that he calls the slippery slope. It was included in his book, and I found it online as well. And on that graphic, uh, Mr. Sandy shows basically three main responses to conflict that we can encounter in our lives. On the left side of the graphic, it kind of looks like a semicircle, a half circle. On the left side of that semicircle, you have what he calls escape responses. On the very far right side, you have what are called attack responses. And then in the middle, you have peacemaking responses. Another way you could put it is you could say the escape responses are peace-faking responses, and they're pretty common in the church at times. Attack responses are peace-breaking responses, and those can be either a, a first response or after some sort of unsuccessful escape. And again, the middle is the peacemaking responses. Another thing to note is that this semicircle the slippery slope, you you have to imagine it like a hill covered with ice. If you start to go too far to one side or the other of the slippery slope, you can slide all the way down. Specifically, on the slope, he, he lists three subsets of different escape responses, three subsets of different attack responses, and then six peacemaking responses. The three escape responses are suicide, flight, and denial that he lists. The three attack responses he lists are assault, litigation, and then murder. So pretty extreme on both ends there. And then in the middle, as far as the peacemaking responses go, Mr. Sandy mentions that when a conflict comes our way in life, and they will come, uh, we can choose to overlook the offense, which is often a biblical thing to do. We can choose to seek reconciliation. That's, That's working through the problem with the person. Negotiation is when not only am I working on the relationship now, but I'm, there are material or physical things that need to be sorted out in that relationship. And then mediation is when you bring in a third party to help you reconcile, to help mediate uh, the conflict. Arbitration is one step further than mediation. It's when two individuals basically entrust themselves to somebody else or a group of other people to solve the conflict. Um, So basically the arbitrators would would make some sort of agreement after hearing both sides, and and both sides submit themselves to the agreement. Even if they didn't pick it, they sign off on the contract or whatever, and they they move forward with that agreement uh, decided by a third party. And then the the last uh, peacemaking response in the middle of this slippery slope is accountability. Um, which is essentially taking it to the church, um, going uh, to the pastors, to the elders, to the congregation, and uh, making it public on that side. 
Uh, as we talked about these peacemaking responses, those first three I mentioned, overlooking the offense, reconciliation, and negotiation, those are personal peacemaking responses. Basically, they're done really just between the two parties. And then the last three there, mediation, arbitration, and, and accountability, are more of assisted peacemaking is what Mr. Sandy calls those, where you're bringing in somebody else to assist with making peace in the conflict. Um, just a couple of trends on this slope as we think about these potential responses to conflict that we should take note of. Uh, first is as you go from left to right on the slippery slope in general, you go from private responses to public responses and from voluntary to forced. Um, further, as I noted earlier, on the extreme responses on both ends of the slope, you get greater losses, right? At the very ends, you have death. Both extremes on the slippery slope result in death. And then you have really kind of like a, a fight or flight sort of um, parallel there that you see between the escape and the attack responses. And then also you can see litigation corresponding in the attack responses, corresponding with denial in, this, in the escape responses. Quite often when we as Christians or really anybody hire a, a lawyer to help with the conflict, we're really getting somebody to say the other party is completely to blame and denying any of our part in it. So you see some correspondence between denial and litigation. Additionally, just to note, the escape responses, they focus on me. It's all about me and me getting away. The attack responses, they all focus on you. It's your fault. You need to fix this. I'm going to get at you for what you did to me in this conflict. And in the middle of the peacemaking responses, they focus on us, how we can work together, how I can own what I've done in the conflict, and, and I want you to own what you have done in this conflict. And Ken Sandy, in his book, he says that many of the problems associated with the escape and the attack responses to conflicts can be prevented if you learn to look at and respond to conflict in a biblical way. So in class, as we kind of move forward, we move from this slippery slope diagram to starting to develop a biblical view then of conflict. We want to avoid the escape responses. We want to avoid the attack responses when conflict comes in life. How do we work towards the peacemaking responses? First step is to develop a biblical view of conflict. So we were talking about how would you define conflict then? Ken Sandy defines conflict as a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Again, that's a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. And this sort of conflict is typically caused by one of four primary factors. So conflict in general is caused by one of four primary factors. The first thing would be a misunderstanding. Um, basically, there's some sort of miscommunication. Two parties don't understand what each other are doing. An example, biblically, would be from the book of Joshua. In Joshua 22, we see the tribes that ended up settling on the other side of the Jordan from the, the other tribes. I think it was um, Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Um, they they build this altar. The rest of Israel sees it, and they're, they're freaking out. They're saying that, man, they're, they're trying to worship God in the place that God has not said to worship. Um, and in reality, what was actually going on is they were saying, we want you to remember us as part of God's people, even though we're on the other side of the Jordan. So there's a misunderstanding that caused the conflict. A second factor that can cause conflict would be differences in values, goals, gifts, or really uh, priorities, callings, expectations, interests, opinions, I mean, any sort of just differences between us. A biblical example, again, would be in Acts 15, when you see Paul and Barnabas split up over differences of thinking whether John Mark, who was Barnabas's cousin, who had left them in their missionary journey earlier, 
Rather, he's joined back up with them. So Paul ends up taking Silas, and Barnabas ends up taking John Mark. And so there's a difference in opinion there about what to do with this guy who had left the ministry and, and deserted them once, and that results in a conflict between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, a third pro- factor that can cause conflict would be competition over limited resources, competition over limited resources, like time or, or like money. Uh, Genesis 13 is a good biblical example. You see Abraham and Lot's servants quarreling over where to pasture their animals. There isn't enough land for all of them, and so they split up. Um, Abraham goes towards Canaan, if I'm not mistaken, um, and Lot goes towards, ends up going towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know what happens to him in that story. And then the fourth factor that can cause um, a conflict would be sinful attitudes and actions. And, and James 4 is a really good Bible passage to, to reference here. In James 4, 1 and 2, James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so in this passage, and really just the first two verses there, James says that sinful attitudes and habits can lead to sinful words and actions and cause conflict. Um, Conflict can come because of sin, and it can even come as a mixture between some of these factors. And so that leads us, as we think about developing a biblical view of conflict, to understand that conflict is not always bad, um, but it's not always neutral or beneficial either. Um, oftentimes in the church, um, we tend to see that all conflict is something that we should avoid. It's, every time there's a conflict, it's, it's something really, really bad. Um, and, and quite often, conflict is something that should be avoided. It, it is quite often a bad thing. But sometimes it's a necessary thing. Um, and the Lord ordains it in our lives um, at specific points. One example that comes to mind is when false teaching comes into the church. Um, there will be conflict when we're called to call out that false teaching with the truth of the gospel um, and to speak against it. And so, as we think about conflict, then really the most important part, Mr. Sandy says in his book, that we should think about in a biblical view of conflict, is he, he says the Bible teaches that we should see conflict neither as an inconvenience nor an occasion to force our will on others, but rather as an opportunity to demonstrate the love and power of God in our lives. That's really the main point of this lesson, is that conflict is an opportunity. And to illustrate that, we turn to 1 Corinthians 10. So in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 31, and we'll read, I'll read all the way to uh, the first verse of chapter 11. Paul says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is writing this verse in the midst of a larger section of 1 Corinthians. It actually started in chapter 8. Um, Corinthians in general is divided up into specific responses. Paul has to questions that the Corinthians either asked him or specific things he wants to address. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols. That phrase, now concerning, a lot of times introduces a new section in the letter. Um, And Paul here is talking about a conflict happening in the church over whether Christians should eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. 
Um, and so there's, it seems to, to be that there were different parties in the church that were advocating for different views on this subject, whether we should eat this food that has been sacrificed to some sort of pagan idol or using some sort of pagan ritual, or whether we should not eat that food. And, and it was a big cultural question at the time for the Corinthian church there in that Greek city. Um, so Paul, in writing to this, he is is going to lay out really three principles here at the end. This is the very end of that section, started in the first verse of chapter 8. It's going to end in the first verse of chapter 11. Um, he gives three main principles here in thinking about conflict. And Ken Sandy calls these the three opportunities of conflict. And those opportunities that Paul lays out here are that in conflict, we have the opportunity to glorify God. We have the opportunity to serve others. And we have the opportunity to grow to be like Christ. You see that in the passage very clearly here. Um, Paul says that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So saying in the midst of the conflict, give glory to God, glorify him. And then he says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So he's saying in the midst of the conflict, find ways to serve other people. There are opportunities here to serve others. And then lastly, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul says at the beginning of chapter 11. So Paul is growing in Christlikeness. He wants the Corinthians to follow his example as they grow in Christlikeness. And so Paul is teaching that in this conflict, there is an opportunity to grow to be like Christ. And so I'm just going to break that down quickly. What do each of these three opportunities then look like as we experience conflicts in our lives? Well, firstly, as I mentioned, conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. Well, how does that work practically? Mr. Sandy gives four ideas for what that looks like practically. First, you can trust God. You can trust God. Um, and that means even when your gut goes against it in the conflict, you want to do what your passions are telling you to do. You can choose to live out the gospel and, and be unnatural in a sense um, as you trust the Lord and, and do what he tells you to do. And that leads to a second idea is that you can obey God. In John 14, Jesus says that if you love me, you'll obey me. You'll do what I tell you to do. And so when we obey God in conflict, we glorify him by showing that his ways are good and that God is worthy. Um, he's, he's worthy of our time. We can trust him, and so we will obey him. And thirdly, we can imitate God. In Ephesians, Paul calls the uh, Ephesian church to imitate the imitators of God. And so we follow Christ. We live out the gospel in the midst of conflict. That means that we die to ourselves. Um, we choose to walk as Christ walked in the midst of that conflict. So we trust God. We obey God. We imitate God. And lastly, we acknowledge God. And in his first epistle, Peter writes that um, we should be ready to give an answer um, when somebody comes to ask us for the reason for the hope that's in us. And quite often that'll happen in conflict. If somebody, you get that one moment where somebody says, how can you act this way in the midst of this horrible family situation, this, this crazy work situation? How can you do this? And you can give glory to God in that moment. You can explain to them the goodness of Jesus and what he's done in his death and resurrection. Um, there in... The book, Mr. Sandy says that every time you encounter a conflict, you will inevitably show what you really think of God. That's a powerful quote. Again, he says, every time you encounter a conflict, you will inevitably show what you really think of God. So first, conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. And secondly, conflict is an opportunity to serve 
others. In conflict, we are called to show mercy to those who offend us, just as God has shown us mercy. In Luke 6, um, and throughout really even in Matthew as well, I think of other places, we're called to love our enemies. Just because you're in conflict with somebody doesn't excuse you from loving that person and serving that person. We're, we're never released from the command to love our neighbors. And so what does that look like in the midst of conflict? Well, sometimes you can help your opponent understand their interests and find better solutions than they would find on their own. You help them to find better solutions for their problems they could find on their own through conflict. You can also provide for their needs in the conflict. That could be spiritual needs, emotional needs, material needs. You can help lift burdens that are beyond your opponent's abilities. Thirdly, you can address areas in your opponent's life in the midst of conflict that need changing, where they've been wrong, where they need to be corrected. You can do that in conflict. Fourth, you can encourage others through conflict to trust in Christ. And you can do that by your response to the conflict and by your behavior in the midst of the conflict. You serve them by pointing them to Jesus, which leads to a last idea here, which is just that you can serve others in conflict by leading by your example. And that it really applies especially um, for those of us who have children or maybe grandchildren. Your children and grandchildren will see how you react during conflict, and that will form that that will be lasting for them. It'll be formative for them. Um, it's very important to be aware of what our example is doing for others in our lives. So conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. Conflict is an opportunity to serve others. And lastly, here conflict is an opportunity to grow to be like. Christ. Um, God's highest purpose for his children is to conform them to the image of his son. In, in Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 28 and 29, it's a powerful passage. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so um, in conflict, uh, God is still working towards that aim for his children. If his highest goal for you is that you would grow to be more like Christ for his glory, then why do we think God wouldn't use conflict towards that end? How does that work? Well, conflict teaches us to depend on God. It reminds us of our weaknesses and shows us that we have to depend on God, which imitates Christ. Secondly, conflict exposes sinful attitudes and habits in our life, particularly stubborn pride, a bitter heart, or a critical tongue. Conflict will reveal the sin that we need to deal with in our lives. And thirdly, conflict not only reveals bad things going on inside of us, but conflict allows us to put godly attitudes and habits into practice. It gives us a, an opportunity in that moment to practice these things that you know to be true from the Word. Um, like an athlete training in this moment is kind of the picture that you might think of. We can practice love and forgiveness and patience and gentleness. And so we learn to see conflict not just as something we're going through, but something that we're, we're growing through in the moment. So those are the three opportunities of conflict that Ken Sandy lays out in his book um, from 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 11, 1. Again, they are that conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. Conflict is an opportunity to serve others, and conflict is an opportunity to grow to be like Christ. And quickly, all of that uh, lays a foundation for what Mr. Sandy calls the four G's of peacemaking. 
And these four G's really kind of make up the, the rest of the book. So this chapter, again, was very introductory, and the, these four G's are really the, the layout of where the book is going. The first one, as we're trying to, again, make peace in a conflict, so four G's of peacemaking, these are four steps towards making peace in any conflict. First is we seek to glorify God. How can I please and honor God in this situation? Secondly, get the log out of your own eye. How can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? Third, gently restore. How can I lovingly serve others by helping them take responsibility for their contribution to this conflict? And then fourth, go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? So you see four steps there, and those really align with those three opportunities, but a slightly different order, right? Glorify God. Well, conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. Get the log out of your own eye. Well, conflict is an opportunity to grow to be more like Christ. Gently restore. Conflict is an opportunity to serve others. And then that last one, go and be reconciled, kind of picks up all three opportunities there um, as we're reconciling the conflict that we're going through in our life. Um, And so just a last closing challenge that I gave that day when I was teaching in our Sunday school class was just how are you stewarding then the conflict opportunities that the Lord has given you? Uh, Ken Sandy, again, in his book, he says, whenever you are involved in conflict, God has given you a management opportunity. You have an opportunity and you need, we need to be stewarding and managing our conflict well. And to do so, we must be motivated by the gospel and informed by the Bible, strengthened through prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit, dependent on Christ and then faithful to what he's called us to do. So that's quickly that first chapter of The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy in our series on biblical peacemaking this summer in in the Family Life class at Timberlake Baptist Church. I really do appreciate you listening, and I hope you have a good day.